Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Mugoditwa, and I'm joined by a special guest today, uh, Mandy Rodriguez. Uh, who's a clinical psychologist in private practice. And, you know, in, t- in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the psychological impact of preterm labor and birth on the mother, father, family, and caregiver. And in fact, this is a topic that's quite close to my heart. And really in the conversation, my hope is that, you know, for those who are listening, who've had the experience, you, you, you can gain some insights, get information, and certainly have a very clear picture of where you would be able to get support. I'm very happy uh, to welcome uh, Mandy Rodriguez. I'm not sure if it's Dr. Mandy Rodriguez, uh, but a warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And maybe to kickstart the conversation, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your occupation. What does it entail? Thank you very much for having me. I qualified as a clinical psychologist probably 29 years ago. My initial aim was to go into pediatrics, but I didn't have the marks. So when I qualified, I realized I could merge psychology and children by working in the field of behavioral medicine. And I kind of started off with HIV and AIDS and then started trying to have a child. And I opened my own practice so that I would have flexibility and my own space and to work with the children and I struggled to have children. So that was my passion originally was to work with women in the same position as myself because there was very little support, Mm -hmm. very little online, very little um, information given to us as the females going through it. And while I went through IVF, my passion grew in terms of the moms I was helping who are often at risk for um, early delivery Mm. or for postnatal depression, which we'll get into. And it grew in terms of looking after them in the ward and following them up further and further and their children. So it encompassed everything in terms of women's health and their stress and falling pregnant during the pregnancy and afterwards. I mean, I'm I'm so fascinated by the fact that I suppose your passion met, met purpose. Um, as I listen to your story. So I feel as though we are in good hands to have the conversation today. So let's let's get straight into it. I mean, we're talking about the psychological impact of preterm labor. And I suppose just in unpacking that a little bit, this is this has got to do with the emotions. This has got to do with that experience. The person who's just undergone, you know, that preterm labor is going through. Um, let's let's just unpack that. When we're talking about the psychology of something or the psychological impact, what are we what are we speaking to? We're looking at what you go through emotionally, which has never been addressed for many years. We kind of have always relied on the specialist to give us medicine. And let's face it, 20, 30, 40 years ago, doctors and the gynecologist and the hospital are the expert. They're the expert. They take care of the science. And inadvertently, the psychology or emotions of the individual we're dealing with have been ignored. Mm. As as women have got more empowered and as patients have become more empowered and had more access to information and spoken out after, for example, a, a NICU stay or after a postnatal depression. So we've developed kind of the psychology of all these different illnesses, which includes 
women going into labor preterm mm. and what they go through. And and maybe just to so so let's I almost want to put myself in the shoes of of this person who's who's undergoing this and some of the the psychological impact at the various stages. So if a woman experienced preterm labor and you know the doctor and medical staff managed to stop the labor and she's actually able to then go home. Let's talk a little bit about what can she expect for the remainder of the pregnancy. And I'm really thinking about kind of from a psychological aspect mm-hmm. on the one hand, and then also there's, you know, things like is the expectation that she'd be on bed rest, avoid sexual intercourse, etc. Let's just unpack that. So I think let's just look at the average pregnant woman. The majority of pregnancies are fine. So the majority of us will skip our period, find out we're pregnant and celebrate and it'll go okay and we'll deliver. We have this visualization and this idealization. Pregnancy is going to be fine and we're going to deliver at 38, 40 weeks, full term. And we start imagining this future as parents. But we also imagine we're naive about the pregnancy. So that's the majority of people. We have those who already know that they're at risk such as an IVF patient or someone who's had an early miscarriage, they go into their pregnancy already anxious. They are already at risk emotionally and they they kind of grade in their pregnancy in terms of let me get to a heartbeat, let me get to the 10-week blood test, let me get to the first trimester. And they take this breath of relief when they get to 22 weeks, 24 weeks, and they're looking at preparing the nursery and getting everything done for 40 weeks. Mm. And then something goes wrong. And suddenly they are faced with this relentless anxiety going forward. Mm. Once something goes wrong in a pregnancy, it's very hard to suddenly become naive about the rest of your pregnancy. And once something goes wrong, possibly in a first pregnancy, the subsequent pregnancy, it almost takes that naive enjoyment or ignorance away from the next pregnancy. Mm. So let's just understand if we go into labor prematurely, when you discharge from the hospital, you're going to be anxious. Mm. That's a given, but we got to make that. How do we manage the reality of that? of that anxiety. Mm. We know that medical science and medication and drugs are good at this point, and that's what your gynecologist will give you or your hospital will give you. you got to trust your specialist is not going to let you go home if he honestly believes there's a benefit to keeping you on a trip or keeping you on meds in the hospital. Mm. If you are fortunate enough to go home, Yes, you're going to be aware of every twinge that's happening. And I always say, err on the side of caution. So, yes, your your gynae dependent on why you were admitted is going to say avoid intercourse. Mm. Avoid possibly having a long bath. If your membranes have ruptured, you're not wanting to get a bath or any infection happening. If it was labor and we managed to stop it, you're going to be waiting for another cramp and you're going to be traumatized by that. And if you need to, and if you're, you're, you have a good relationship with your doctor, go to the labor ward and let them check. Mm. Rather on the side of caution because 
the worst is if you have regrets and you could have done something. Mm. So, yes, it's not going to be as nice when you go home. You're probably going to be less naive about having a baby shower. You Mm. might feel, I don't want to have a baby shower. I'm so scared. I'm going to jinx it. And I say to the moms, your mind is not strong enough to actually have jinxed and caused you to go into labor or caused you to have lost your baby. We are not that powerful. Then there would be more miscarriages and more preterm labors of people who don't want their babies. And I suppose just just listening to you talk about your mind is not that powerful, giving this advice to, to, to the ladies who come, because I think... I think what happens is that the story starts to play out in your mind. And of course, there's a tendency, and I don't know if this happens to all women, but you almost imagine the worst case scenario. And and so, I mean, how do we manage that? And I imagine that's part of that anxiety you described, where you said, you know, something goes wrong and that anxiety sets in immediately. How do I, how do I control or, or, or manage some of that that, that mental sort of busyness where, where a story is playing out in its mind, I'm super anxious and it just continues to build. What are some of the things I could do to manage that? So what I like doing with women is saying, let's break the rest of the pregnancy up into little manageable steps on a ladder. So for example, if you're 20 weeks in this preterm labor right at the beginning, they managed to stop it. Let's break it up and say, what is the next step I got to get to? Well, I want to get the birth weight of the baby Mm. up to 500 grams. Mm. What is the next step? I want to, and then 24 weeks and maybe, well, we actually know nowadays that babies of 20 weeks, which ethically... You know, they can be viable and can be saved and can actually survive. But, and there is a big ethical debate that I'm not going to go into now. Mm. But we've got to then say, so I get to 24. Mm. What is the reality? My baby will be maybe a micronet or it'll go into NICU. It'll be ventilated. Mm. If I get to 26 weeks, our baby's a bit bigger. Maybe we're already on steroids. So we almost break it up into saying, Let's focus on what we can manage for the next Mm. week or two and tick them off as we go further. And I can imagine how empowering that is for somebody who still has to almost not wait it out, but who still has the rest of her sort of pregnancy. Um, I need to... I need to be in a particular space. And I know that, you know, your mental wellness is important for the pregnancy itself. Yes. So so let's, I mean, I, I almost want to move the conversation into, into some of the stress disorders that people could have. And I almost imagine that this is the worst case scenario from some of that anxiety we spoke to. Yes. So, so just help to simplify some of these. And I know we talk about things like acute stress disorder, ASD. There's the post-traumatic stress disorder, quite a popular one, PTSD. And and of course, you spoke to this a little bit earlier in your introduction, the postpartum depression. Just help us to understand these terms, unpack them a little bit for us. Okay. So a trauma reaction is a reaction physically and emotionally to something that's beyond what we expected as a normal human experience, right? So we would define that as preterm labor because it's not... In the norm of experience, is not what we anticipated. A NICU stay, a cesarean section if we were wanting a vaginal delivery, a baby that's maybe underweight. So all of those are traumatic situations. Any human being is going to react with what we call ASD. 
acute stress disorder. Mm. We're not human beings if, for example, a hijacking happens and I am debriefed and I'm not stressed by it. It's a normal human condition that we respond in the immediate situation and up until a month afterwards with symptoms that resemble post-traumatic stress disorder. So it would be heightened heart rate. It would be a sense of panic. It would be a sense of fear, possibly nightmares, possibly being fearful, specifically if you've had a preterm labor of walking into the ward again. So there's certain triggers that are absolutely normal and Mm -hmm. Whoever created us did a very good job at making us aware that we should not expose ourselves to potential dangers. So it's normal to have an acute stress reaction after that. Hmm. If that persists beyond a month and it gets worse, that is when it becomes a post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. So the symptoms become more relentless they probably, the nightmares become worse. We start feeling worse than we do better. With acute stress disorder, you start feeling better as you move further away from the trauma. Hmm. Post-traumatic stress disorder, you feel worse. Then we have postnatal depression. Now, this is this occurs in about 20% of women. And most women I see come to me and say, but postnatal depression means I'm not bonded to my baby. That's absolute nonsense. Mm. So historically, we've always thought if I have postnatal depression, it means I don't relate to my baby. I'm unhappy with my baby. There's no attachment. In fact, women with postnatal depression are often too attached and too anxious and more worried than the average woman about their baby. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's not necessarily depression as the main symptom Mm. is anxiety. So the majority of the moms, it's normal from day around about three till maybe two and a half weeks for us to have baby blues Mm. where we are a bit tearful and it's a bit of disbelief and, but it's transient and it doesn't interfere with our lives. Mm. Once the baby hits about three weeks, I say to my patients, they, start waking up a bit more at night. So you're cruising through the first two weeks thinking this newborn actually sleeps. Easy to put it back to sleep. After three weeks, first that accumulated effect of no sleep catches up with you. Then you start getting relentlessly anxious and then it'll only with time kick into a depression. Mm. So postnatal depression often presents as anxiety or panic attacks. And then with time, the depression comes in. Very different to what we call postnatal psychosis, which Mm -hmm. is only 1% of women. That's a whole different story. Those are the women who harm their babies, the women who don't connect to their babies. But that's psychosis. That's Mm -hmm. when the mother is admitted. And it's a very different scenario to postnatal depression. I mean, I think it's important to to distinguish between the terms because, I mean, if a woman has experienced preterm labor and let's imagine she suffers from that acute stress disorder, which you described as a response to trauma, that's pretty normal. 
Yes. I mean, I'm hearing that it's pretty normal. Um, yes. But the minute that is prolonged, so I think you spoke about, I think you said three weeks? They they generally say if it goes beyond a month, but I would say if it's not improving within uh-huh. two it's weeks, three worse. weeks, okay. yes, it's getting worse. Because remember with the, an acute stress reaction, the body is programmed to kind of avoid maybe for a while driving alone at night because, you know, maybe it's the body saying, well, it's not too safe to do that, so avoid it. But the next week you're able to drive that same route and your heart rate's not fluttering, etc. Mm. It starts getting better and you're able to approach those triggers. You don't become avoidant. If you start becoming avoidant within the next two, three weeks, and there's this response as acute as if the event is happening in that moment, then there's a problem. Okay. That's why we debrief people in the first two weeks. Mm. It's based, and you'll see the police do that after a trauma. It's based to bring in someone to say, this is quite normal right now. This is what you're going to go through. Describe the symptoms. And I'd love to do that with women to say, this is actually what you're going to feel right now. Mm. It's going to resolve. If it doesn't with time, then we'll manage it. And I think that's important. Yes. So, so you're going to feel this almost to give, to give the sense, look, you are going to feel a little bit blue. Yes. Uh, but if it's prolonged or if it gets any worse, then you need to think about, you know, uh, consulting the appropriate healthcare practitioner or getting yes. whatever, you know, support or, or help you need. Yes. 100%. I think that's important. I want to, to go back to, so w- when we started the conversation, I said, you know, this woman has experienced, you know, preterm labor. And for the most part, she's been fortunate enough to be able to go back home. And, you know, she's dealing with a couple of uh, sort of emotional challenges, etc. And I think you've been wonderful in terms of assisting us to think through how she could work through that. So I love what you said about, you know, how we break it up into those Mm -hmm. steps. I think that's incredibly empowering. You know, we deal with what we can manage at that particular point in time. Let's go to an example or a situation where, you know, the labor can't be stopped. So, you know, we've got this, this baby that needs to be delivered, let's say at 26 weeks. Can, can you assist us to think or, or rather explain, you know, what, how the mother's psychological state could be affected, you know, by, by this preterm labor that, that includes things like a, a gestational age. Um, that it has not reached its full maturity. So baby comes in earlier than the 40 weeks. Um, things like the weight of the baby. I mean, if I think about pictures that I've seen, the babies are tiny, mm. you know, mm. and so you've got this little baby you could hold in the palm of your hand. Yes. Let's talk a little bit around that experience. So the biggest thing is, is when we hear that a baby's coming earlier, especially at 24, 26 weeks, is we know that the baby, even if it's managing to weigh a little bit more than what we anticipated, its lungs and its whole, its all its organs are not developed to the point of an older baby, even though the weight might be a bit raised or higher than what we thought. Mm. The lower the gestational weight and the lower or the gestational time and the lower the birth weight, obviously the more risk to the baby. So... When we look at going into a NICU ward, first of all, the baby is taken while the mother's on the table ordinarily. Unless she, even if she gave birth 
vaginally. That baby is whisked away. So the mother often doesn't see what is this, doesn't hear a cry. What does my baby look like? They don't see how small it is. And this is where I often say if the woman's fortunate enough to have a partner, which a lot didn't during COVID, decide with your husband who's going to go with the baby. And obviously it's going to be him. Mm. So, so your big concern when you're lying there is my baby, my baby, allow your husband to go into NICU or go with the pediatrician. You often won't get to see your baby straight away because the peds are working on the baby. Mm. So there's this lack of not knowing what's going on. And that's where I like if we're able to anticipate a woman's going to have a preterm baby, have a visit to the NICU ward mm. if possible. Expose the woman to what the babies look like. Yeah even if it's through the little window in the NICU ward, just so that they know the baby is going to be full of pipes. The baby potentially could be in a little plastic wrapper. The smaller these babies are, the more likely their skin is to peel. So you put them in almost a glad wrap so that you're protecting their skin. Hmm. They look like baby birds. Now, it it. To have a look at this, and this is your baby that you carried, is going to be a trauma in itself, mm. never mind the fact that you delivered early. So the best way to try and avoid that is prepare them for it, mm. including the husbands. And then is that long, hard road of those first 24 hours, that first 48 hours, where we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what the infection is like. We don't know if the baby's going to survive. And I think that's the hardest for the parents. They don't sleep. Mm. And we know if they don't sleep, there's going to be a worse post-traumatic stress reaction. In fact, women who don't sleep for two or three days, anyone who doesn't sleep, can actually start presenting with hallucinations and with with um, extreme, not psychosis, but with extreme things that don't make sense to them and out of touch with reality we don't want that Hmm. so we want to know your baby is in the best hands possible in an environment in a NICU with the best people possible you need to keep yourself you've got to sleep you've got to get up and come sit with your baby but they're looking after everything they can Hmm. no one can do it better right now for that baby than what they can so I mean I'm just I'm imagining it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things I remember just about my own experience was when, you know, you deliver the baby. And I mean, I had C-sections, but baby comes and they bring baby to you and they encourage that contact with yes. baby. They say, oh, that, that's critically important to, to start that bonding process. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying in this in this instance, even that, I mean, they, they obviously are, are wanting to to ensure that the baby is healthy. Yes. And so and so, I'm I'm imagining or I'm understanding that a mother typically wouldn't even have the opportunity to do that skin to skin contact. And I think that in, in mm-hmm. and of itself um, mm-hmm. is is daunting. You don't see this child immediately. Your baby gets taken to you say it's NICU. Yes, neonatal ICU. So we abbreviate it as NICU. Okay, that's, yes. that's the term. I kept hearing yes. the word NICU, and I thought it must mm-hmm. be the NICU. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yes. 
So, so baby then gets taken to, to, to neonatal. And I suppose what I'm hearing you say is that, look, this is, this is the best thing you can do at that point in time for your baby. Yes. Is to allow them to go off and, and to get the specialized care and treatment that they require whilst you try and focus on getting a bit of sleep so that you can recover. I imagine that, you know, that mother would have also had to undergo some kind of operation. Mm. Most of them typically would deliver, you know, C-section. And so yes. they need to, to, to tend almost to their own recovery uh, yes. as well. So, and also, I just to give women more uh, positivity about this, skin-on-skin contact has become, you know, historically people are talking about that's the initial bonding with the baby and it's important for birth. The bottom line is if you don't get that, it's not going to compromise your relationship with the baby. Mm. I can promise you that. If I look at women in the last couple of years, they come back to me and say, you know what, social media and everyone has said you must love your baby when it's born. Let me tell you, the majority of people I talk to, they say all babies are ugly. They all look swollen. They all look, <laughs> you know, a lot of them feel guilty because I actually want that baby just take it let me just wash myself if I've had a vaginal delivery let me just get ready for this Mm. there's this perception that you fall in love with this baby immediately and that dictates your relationship with the baby it is not so amongst Mm. the majority of people I see so it's not going to compromise your relationship with your baby when you have a baby anyway full term Mm. it's normal that you get the sense of disbelief and kind of am I really a mother and where's the baby so yes it heightens that sense of disbelief as it would in a trauma Mm. but there are ways we can manage that it's almost a protective mechanism initially that there's a shock and disbelief it protects us in that short term so that we can act like when we arrange a funeral for someone we're originally protected by that shock disbelief and numbness Mm. Mm. see it as a protective mechanism that helps you sleep take your meds get up walk to NICU it protects you to go through the motions Mm. before you go through the feelings of what you're going through I mean, I love what you're saying because I think traditionally we we have been conditioned into believing that if you don't have that immediate bond and even, you know, even in sort of a a pregnancy where it is full term and you've had no complications. I've also heard people who say things like that baby was brought to me. I looked at this thing and I thought, Mm -hmm. that's nice. Just take it away. You know, and so it wasn't. I think and I think what I'm hearing is that it's 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 different for 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 each person. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a unique experience to the person who's having it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, if you're sitting listening to this, I suppose that's what we're saying to you, that this is an experience that's different, you know, for, for different people. Yes. Um, and, and so I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, those feelings that a, a person might have. So they've, they've sort of gone into preterm labor um, and there is that sense of disbelief. You've just spoken to that. Could, could that even sort of develop into a resentment of sorts, a resentment that something more could have been done to prevent the, the preterm labor? Uh, is it normal for, for a woman to also be sitting with a situation where they start to blame themselves even? What are some of those typical reactions that we see and what would you offer to somebody who, who's sitting with that? So I think Amongst every woman I see, they feel like they have failed in some way or their body has failed in some way. And I often say to them, it is not your body. It is the situation 
We've got to externalize that reason because blaming yourself, even if it is because you ruptured membranes or, you know, our bodies are so strong that there's nothing you can physically really do. You can't have had intercourse last night or even a car accident that you physically did this to yourself Mm. and it's not going to help. It's normal to go through that reaction. We go through a grief reaction after a trauma Mm. or after something that we didn't anticipate. Like I said, there's a shock and disbelief. Then we go through anger. Okay, Anger is stage two of grief or accepting something. There is going to be anger. There's Mm. going to be blame. There's going to be anger at our husbands. There's going to be anger at women who have delivered full term. There's going to be anger at at everyone. Then we go through a phase of bargaining. Anger is leads us to a way of trying to then make sense of what just happened. And that's when we start blaming ourselves. Bargaining is purely trying to grasp an understanding of what happened. And this is where science comes in and the doctor is to maybe say, well, your cervix was shortened and this is why this happened. We accept that easier. Mm. If if someone says we don't know why it happened or this happened unexpectedly or it doesn't make any sense, patients struggle to, to grasp that concept. Mm. So this is where doctors can be very central in giving them a reason because if we have a reason for something happening we usually perceive we've got more control and we can try and avoid it, right? Mm. So that's the bargaining. Then we go through a bit of depression and then we have acceptance. And that's the normal stage of what everyone will go through regardless of whether they develop long-term depression or post-traumatic stress. And and just, you know, as, as, as this new mother is experiencing these stages of grief, if we can call them that, you know, what's the support that a birthing partner or the family can can give to her in an emotional sense? You know, how do we support her? And I'll come to how we then support those who are supporting the mother. So when the baby's born, what does everyone want to know is how much did the baby weigh? How are you doing in hospital? And this happens prior to preterm. It happens from the minute of preterm labor. There are relentless messages coming through. So what I say to the husbands is form one WhatsApp group where Mm. you're the only admin and add on those people who are sending messages to your wife or sending messages to you, put them on that group. Mm. They can leave if they want. And you have the ability to post updates. You don't owe it to anyone, especially once your baby is there, to give them feedback. There's something called circles of support. The person in the middle is you and your husband. Mm. They're central. The next ring is probably your parents the next ring is maybe siblings then friends then colleagues as you go further out you don't owe it to any of those outer circles to give them support and to make them feel better Mm. so i say to the husbands please form that group number two when your wife is not able to go up and down can you please take some time off and go and do the feeds or the important things. Once mom is discharged, that's when all the help comes in from all the others. Mm. The food. So even though 
the husband can get takeaways and the wife can get takeaways. Don't go and say, is there anything you need? Just go and deliver some meals. Mm. No one's going to ask you for the help, not when they're in that sort of situation. And there's a lovely religion who actually I work with a lot who they, they've got a support group who if someone's in hospital or someone's lost a baby or someone's got a preterm baby for six weeks and some schools do it, they provide meals for this family without them having to, to sure. ask. Okay, so it just takes one of those things off. Keep in mind, the mom needs to go and visit her baby every day. How does she get there? Hmm. She can't catch Uber all the time and she maybe doesn't want to. Say, I will fetch you at nine o'clock every day, for example. Hmm. I mean, just just to step in there, I was I was chatting to somebody who'd had the experience of delivering preterm, and you know, she said I had to go back to the hospital six times because I'm in there to feed. So I said, well, could you permanently sort of just settle in the hospital? She said, no, I was in there. I would feed. I would leave. I would go back. You know, mm -hmm. and this happened up to six times each day. Wow. You know, for the duration of baby stay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm 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 hearing what you're saying about how some of that support sometimes is just saying. Don't worry about an Uber. I mean, there's admin involved in trying to get that yes. Uber. But if I have the assurance that over the next three days, you know, this family member or my friend is going to be coming and taking me on those mm. hospital trips, it just makes things, you know, a lot better. And maybe let's move to, to, the, to the dad, you know, or, or, or to the partner or to the person who's there, the immediate person assisting with the caring. What is some of the impact of this on them? So they see their wife going into labor and going through all of this stuff. They don't feel they're in control. They then have their wife's emotions to deal with. So often those fathers are completely misaligned. They're not taken care of. They often are the ones who will go and lose their temper with a the doctor. Mm. They will present with irritability, anger, aggravation. They will externalize more and Staff will see them as the difficult one, but actually that's how fathers tend to react in that situation, even in terms of depression. And 10% of those dads are at risk for a, a depression themselves, but it comes out as irritation and blame and that kind of thing. They often need to get back to work. So they're the possibly the breadwinner because the mom can't work at that moment. So there is a lot of guilt. Mm. And actually, at the end of the day, they report a lot of guilt because they feel better for having gone back to work because they're not the one, they're doing something active. They're not the one sitting there for 12 hours a day, mm. having to wait for that call, having to express milk because we forget these moms are expressing milk. They're not going home and sleeping a 12-hour night. They're going home and waking up every three hours or more to express milk because those babies in NICU need that milk in that moment. So we often have the husband feeling guilty and in a good marriage or relationship, husbands and wives tend to grieve at different moments. As the wife is really struggling, a husband is trying to be more optimistic and more positive mm. and focus on the good things. And it only gives him permission when the wife is doing better, which might take months and months and months, that he's then able to react with that release and that post-traumatic stress. 
So we need to take care of the husbands and say, you're doing a great job by supporting her, but we also need to talk to you because you're going to be strong for this woman. She's going to perceive that you just got over it and Mm. you don't feel anything. Mm. And we need to just tell her, actually, all you're doing is trying to support her and not make it worse. And the dads also, there's very little they can do because you can't hold those tiny babies. Mm. And the first one who's going to hold it is going to be the mom. And we're going to limit how many people do hold the baby. So they often don't feel like they're very useful in that moment. And so we get them, I get some of the dads to read a story to their baby every night. Take a book. There's so much you can do when you're sitting there with your baby. You can bring when they're getting a bit bigger and they don't, they've got a little blanket, bring in a bit of color. Bring in a photo, maybe of your other kids or the family to put on the stand if the ward allows for it. Read a story. Nobody stops you from reading that story. And let me tell you, these little babies remember certain songs. I had a set of twins who were delivered at during COVID by a surrogate mother at 26 weeks due to mm. preeclampsia to two same-sex dads who all they could do was sing certain songs every night when they came. It was very little else they could do. And I remember in the rooms, the one baby was discharged and it was, I've still got a video of it, about three months old, and he was feeding it in the rooms and it wouldn't settle and he sang the song. Mm. And it was a Michael Bublé song and he sang it and this little baby just relaxed automatically. Mm. It could remember. Mm. Remember, hearing and all those senses are developed. 100%. So do that. Then you feel you're doing something. I mean, I love the practicality of the of the suggestions that you're giving. Um, I'm thinking about, I mean, as you were speaking, I, I just almost had this wonderful picture of simulating almost this environment yes. of love and care. Yes. Um, because I think that's that's the thing. We want this child to feel like we love them, we care for them, we want them to grow. We can't wait to take them home. And so those very practical things that we can do, we don't need to wait to get home to do no. those things. And I think for no. me that's, that's incredibly special. I mean, I'm thinking about, so you spoke about, you know, the circles of support. And of course, there's your partner and then, you know, family, friends, etc. you know, as the circle extends. I, I, I'm now thinking about the other role players, if I, if I consider sort of, you know, family who also want to be involved. So for example, you know, mothers tend, mothers of the, of the person mm. who's had the baby typically want to get very involved and particularly if there was some kind of problem or issue. Mm. What are some of the, the, the long-term effects on the extended uh, circle of support? So things like our families, et cetera, parents in particular. So when grandparents see that their grandchild is potentially critically ill, they grieve or have a loss not only of this grandchild that was going to be, but they they exceptionally sad for their child. Mm. So it's a, it's a double sadness that they feel, and yet they're not given the opportunity to be close to that circle enough, even by the wards to actually go in and visit that baby. Mm. Certain wards allow for once a week for grandparents to come in. But I must say, quite honestly, a lot of the parents don't want that visit. They actually don't want 
And it's not about exposure. It's just about there's too much that they're emotionally dealing with that they would just rather minimize any emotional interaction. It is so hard for them to even say, hello, how are you? Or what are you having for lunch that they actually don't want that. So the grandparents and family feel very separated from this and helpless as to the updates. Mm. The best they can do is be on those groups, do the practical things, and when the baby comes home, allow for that mother and that parent to dictate when you can visit. And Because the biggest problems in relationship come in if you overstep those boundaries. You're going to let the parents decide those boundaries. And this is where we see mothers, mother-in-laws, Competition start developing, and sadly, this can carry on indefinitely. So we want to actually say to parents, allow you dictate when people can come visit and how much contact they're allowed. And everyone's got a word of advice in terms of this prem baby going forward. You are allowed to, as the parent, put out a sanitizer at the front door. You are allowed to say this baby is not going to see people for the next three months or it's not going to go to crash for two years mm. because I'm worried. Mm. Doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. Doesn't matter what everyone else's story is. Always remember you the center of that story. And I think your parents need to recognize that. And then beyond that, they can make, they're the center for the extended family. Again, I mean, that's incredibly important. Um, you know, you don't want a situation where the grandparents, because they feel left out, um, it's, it's not personal. It's just no. somebody who's having to go through a very challenging time. There's a lot that's happening around them. And in fact, they need that space. I, I want us to get into some of these things that are happening. So, so I imagine now that this mother, you know, is able to go to NICU. Uh, to bond with her baby. But I also know, you know, from having had a couple of conversations with people who've had the experience is that, you know, NICU is very specific about how they do things, very specific in terms of the rules. Um, I mean, I remember the lady I was chatting to saying to me, um, you know, there's checklists. Mm. You're ticking checklists for mother, checklists for baby. And so let's, let's, sort of almost go through what some of those things are. I think it's important. And then beyond that, you know, if you have any advice for somebody who is, is struggling a little bit to cope with, with all of that, um, you know, that situation. So NICU is probably got the best staff. If I look at interacting with staff, these are ladies and men who are absolutely passionate about babies and are very dedicated to their jobs. They know what they're doing. They have very strict rules because remember, some of these babies are so small, we have to bring x-ray machines into NICU. We've got to bring, possibly perform a surgery in NICU because the baby can't go to theater. So mm. they have to have strict rules there. Number two is these babies are very susceptible to infection. If we get one baby possibly infected by something, it can spread throughout a ward where babies' immune systems are completely compromised. So they limit who's allowed access to the ward. They also limit times. So we allow the team of doctors and pediatricians and OTs and physios to go and visit those babies during certain times. So the hospital might say, no parents allowed up until we open the ward to you at maybe nine in the morning. Mm. And you've got to respect those. There's 
feeding times at certain times. And the base babies are the ones who come up with an amazing routine from NICU because they have to function on routine and on certain structures in that ward. They don't want relentless visitors. We are dealing here with kind of critically ill babies. So you cannot have more than one visitor there and at certain times because you've got to work on changing these ports. It's not like an adult ICU. Mm. And even there it's limited. Mm. So they need that time in order to plan their day. And there's also... There's the very critically ill babies, and then there is a high care usually attached to that where maybe they're a little bit more flexible, but generally not. In terms of managing afterwards, I think you've got to know that once you've had a prem baby, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be told that your baby is more vulnerable to maybe a chest infection in the future Mm -hmm. or asthma. And you're going to stress about that. And every time they cough, you're going to worry, is it asthma? Is it a chest infection? And it's not always. One of my kids spent some time in the NICU. And fortunately, at the time, I didn't realize that they're more susceptible to maybe chest problems. So I didn't think twice about it if he got pneumonia or anything. And he survived. And I didn't go and run to the pediatrician and get the extra meds. But again, it was a short NICU stay. When Mm. they're there for an extended period of time or they are prem, you're going to be anxious about what are they exposed to and how many people do they see. You're almost robbed of that joy of going to the mall out for lunch with your little baby because you're so scared that it could actually mean something serious and a readmission back to the ward. So the first few months, you probably just coping mechanically you just getting through feed to feed you're not sleeping because you're worried what if the baby's heart stops what if there's a problem at night your baby's probably very small you feeling you cannot let it sleep too long even if it does because you've got to feed it so people don't go for support in those first few months they're often so anxious to leave that baby which shows that they're very attached to the baby, but they're anxious. There's a separation anxiety going on. They only present then months or a year down the line when they almost surface again and the baby's sleeping a bit longer or they finally delegated something to their mother Mm. or to a caregiver. So pick up as it's becoming, when you're feeling down, you're not getting sleep. Mm. especially that catch-up of no sleep. And even if it means you've got to get someone in to sit with you, you don't need to give them the baby. You can do the basics of feeding your baby, of winding it, of changing it. But if you've got someone who's just sitting there next to you and watching something on TV, watching ENCA, watching a series with you, even if they spend the night Mm. and you happen to fall asleep, someone's sitting there as kind of the caregiver of the baby. So there's just this peace of mind, I find. You don't need to relinquish everything to somebody else. And again, I think it it takes us back to that conversation around the importance of support. 
I think support is critical. And I think we've spoken to the support of your partner. I think we've spoken to the support you have from extended family, etc. What we didn't talk to, and I'm curious about this one. I'm a mother to three children. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, oh my, there were two others at home at some point when I had gone to have the third one. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of something like this on on the siblings who are expecting that their little baby brother or baby sister would be coming home. Mm. How, you know, how do we how do we assist those, uh, you know, young siblings? Yeah, they go through a difficult time because the mom goes into preterm labor. She's admitted and maybe it's not for a long time. But depending on how young they are, they don't understand this. They think mom is ill. So and then mom comes home and mom's a different person with the baby in her tummy. The younger they are, the more resentment they'll kind of feel towards this baby or towards what's in mom's tummy. You start preparing them then that you're going into hospital. But often it's unpredictable when we have a preterm delivery. So you're going to hospital and baby's sick. So all these children at home see is mom's gone for three days, unless she has complications, it's longer. Dad is potentially gone. And there's other people looking after us. Our routines are changed. Then mom comes back. But she's maybe not well, but she's always visiting baby. So before they were anticipating at least there's something visual that they can see. Now there's something abstract that maybe they build a bit of resentment to, a bit of trauma because they associate this baby with mom disappearing or mom not being well. Mm. Then they hear about the baby being sick. And our kids, depending on their level of abstraction, when they hear baby sick, for them, their little mind jumps to, especially if that baby is very ill or sadly passes on, Mm. their mind starts thinking every time someone gets sick in my little world, they're going to die. So there's certain books that we can buy that is at age-related kind of vocab that we can read little kids just like they preparing for a baby how do we prepare for a sibling it's how do we prepare when mom goes into hospital or when baby doesn't come home just to put this in perspective for them Mm. but again it's that's when we need support that's when we need grannies to come in that's when we need uncles and aunts and godmothers if you cannot be there For this new baby that's in the ward, the best you can actually do is take care of the rest. Mm. Take them to school. If you don't want to take them to school, make lunch. Mm. Take them out for a movie or just sit there and see what you can do in terms of that routine. If you can get that off your daughter's mind or your son's mind, that is what's worrying them most. Let them focus on what is most urgent right now. Mm. So you touched briefly on you know, an instance where the baby doesn't make it and, you know, the, the preterm baby passes on. Mm. You know, how, how do parents cope in that situation? You know, do, do you have any advice that you, you could give to them? Look, that is the most devastating thing that can happen. And there is so much to unpack with that. But a lot of the time they start questioning also, especially if their baby's been in the NICU ward for a while, is questioning everything we did was it enough or we did all of this and it just was never going to work so not only are they traumatized by the fact that they lose their baby but they're also traumatized about what they've been through it takes on a different meaning they're kind of 
the nights that I expressed my milk, the nights that I sat at the hospital, what was it for? Mm. You know, usually that's not going to traumatize you because you're bringing your baby home and it justifies, you know, it meets what you get out at the end. And then you're going to go through the worst grief that possibly a parent can go through, which is the loss of a child. Mm. And that's why I often say to the parents, there is no word for losing a child Mm. because it is the most devastating loss. And you grieve future. Unlike losing someone who you have a history with where you can think of memories, the only memories you have of this baby is horrible memories in the ward where you don't know if your baby's in pain, you're anxious about it all the time. So the memories you grieve are the memories you had about first birthday parties, first celebrations, putting your baby in the nursery. So your grief goes into the future. And there's so much to unpack with that. Yeah, I, I think know. we'll have to have another yes. another conversation mm-hmm. about that because I think I think that's equally important to get into and to unpack and to think about ways in which we could offer support to people who find themselves in in that situation. I mean, just as a matter of interest, do do we know what the figures are of of you know of the loss of of, of premature generally one out of four? Mm. If I look at the stats. Okay. And, and these are local stats. We're talking generally kind of from a sort of South generally, African perspective. When, when I go to organizations like this month is Pregnancy and Baby Awareness last month. So if I look at the marketing and the slogans that generally trend across the world, it's one out of four women are going to go through this, which I love when I speak to these moms because it means – Every four people you tell your story to, you're going to touch one. So it's a way to get them to talk and say that actually of us here in the room, Mm. one of us has experienced a loss Mm. or experienced a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And yes, it is probably 25%, but then looking across women across the spectrum of pregnancy who would lose a baby or a child. And and Mandy, as as we wrap things up, you know, if you had to just give me sort of three, three points, and we've had an extensive conversation across a number of different areas, but you know, there's a lady who's sitting listening to the conversation. She may have experienced this, uh, you know, she may have experienced it even with a previous pregnancy and is currently expecting. What? What what three sort of things do you want to leave in the minds and the hearts of those who are listening, either having gone through something like this previously, you know, or who is currently experiencing something like this? Medical science and medicine in general is getting better and better all the time. So keep in mind, science is going to have better skills to manage it the next time we hope. So that's number one, and understand that we actually have a very good outcome with premature babies because, like I said, there's some units that babies at 22 weeks are actually able to survive in the NICU ward. Number two is your baby is probably safer in a NICU ward than it is inside you Mm. in that time. If there's a reason to deliver, understand that your baby – don't have regrets. It would have been more harmful to keep that baby inside. And 
more sense of lack of control because mm. you can't see what's going on. Mm. When we go into the NICU ward, we can at least try and manage and replicate what's going on. And point number three is absolutely it's traumatic. And if you can expose yourself to managing this step by step, mm. whether it means if it's your first time going into prem labor, ask if you can maybe see the ward. Ask what the routines of the ward are. Ask what you should pack in case your baby comes early. Ask those questions. Maybe ask to see a pediatrician mm. that says these are the critical times when we would look for. That'll give you a guideline. The pediatrician might come in and say, we want to get you to 24 weeks or 26 and so you've got some sort of roadmap ahead. Thank you. I mean, I think the conversation has been insightful. I think it's been informative. But most of all, I think it's been encouraging. And so I want to appreciate, uh, you know, the contributions you've shared. I really love the practicality of the recommendations that you've shared uh, with us. Thank you so much, Mandy. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Fairing Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store. <laughs>